Section 133 of Chesterfield's Letters to His Son. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter 164. London, April 13th, Old Style, 1752. My dear friend, I received this moment your letter of the 19th New Style, with the enclosed pieces relative to the present dispute between the King and the Parliament. I shall return them by Lord Huntingdon, whom you will soon see at Paris, and who will likewise carry you the piece, which I forgot in making up the packet I sent you by the Spanish ambassador. The representation of the Parliament is very well drawn, sovite in modo, fortite in re. They tell the king very respectfully, that in a certain case, which they should think it criminal to suppose, they would not obey him. This hath a tendency to what we here call revolution principles. I do not know what the Lord's anointed, his vice-regent upon earth, divinely appointed by him, and accountable to none but him for his actions, will either think or do, upon these symptoms of reason and good sense, which seem to be breaking out all over France. But this I foresee, that before the end of this century the trade of both king and priest will not be half so good a one as it has been. Duclos, in his reflections, hath observed very truly, qu'il y a un germe de raison qui commence à se développer en France, a développement that must prove fatal to regal and papal pretensions. Prudence may in many cases recommend an occasional submission to either, but when that ignorance, upon which an implicit faith in both could only be founded, is once removed, God's vice-regent and Christ's vicar will only be obeyed and believed as far as what the one orders and the other says is conformable to reason and to truth. I am very glad, to use a vulgar expression, that you make as if you were not well, though you really are. I am sure it is the likeliest way to keep so. Pray leave off entirely your greasy, heavy pastry, fat creams, and indigestible dumplings, and then you need not conform yourself to white meats, which I do not take to be one jot wholesomer than beef, mutton, and partridge. Voltaire sent me from Berlin his Histoire du siècle de Louis XIV. It came at a very proper time. Lord Bolingbroke had just taught me how history should be read. Voltaire shows me how it should be written. I am sensible that it will meet with almost as many critics as readers. Voltaire must be criticized. Besides, every man's favorite is attacked, for every prejudice is exposed, and our prejudices are our mistresses. Reason is at best our wife, very often heard indeed, but seldom minded. It is the history of the human understanding, written by a man of parts, for the use of men of parts. Weak minds will not like it, even though they do not understand it, which is commonly the measure of their admiration." Dull ones will want those minute and uninteresting details with which most other histories are encumbered. He tells me all I want to know and nothing more. His reflections are short, just, and produce others in his readers. Free from religious, philosophical, political, and national prejudices, beyond any historian I ever met with, he relates all those matters as truly and impartially as certain regards, which must always be to some degree observed, will allow him for one sees plainly that he often says much less than he would say, if he might. He hath made me much better acquainted with the times of Louis XIV than the innumerable volumes which I had read could do, and hath suggested this reflection to me, which I have never made before. His vanity, not his knowledge, made him encourage all, and introduce many arts and sciences in his country. 
he opened in a manner the human understanding in France, and brought it to its utmost perfection. His age equaled in all, and greatly exceeded in many things, pardon me, pedants, the Augustan. This was great and rapid, but still it might be done by the encouragement, the applause, and the rewards of a vain, liberal, and magnificent prince. What is much more surprising is, that he stopped the operations of the human mind just where he pleased, and seemed to say, Thus far shalt thou go, and no farther. For, a bigot to his religion, and jealous of his power, free and rational thoughts upon either, never entered into a French head during his reign, and the greatest geniuses that ever any age produced, never entertained a doubt of the divine right of kings, or the infallibility of the church. Poets, orators, and philosophers, ignorant of their natural rights, cherished their chains, and blind, active faith triumphed in those great minds over silent and passive reason. The reverse of this seems now to be the case in France. Reason opens itself, fancy and invention fade and decline. I will send you a copy of this history by Lord Huntington, as I think it very probable that it is not allowed to be published and sold at Paris. Pray read it more than once, and with attention, particularly the second volume, which contains short, but very clear accounts of many very interesting things, which are talked of by everybody, though fairly understood by very few. There are the two very puerile affectations which I wish this book had been free from. The one is the total subversion of all the old established French orthography. The other is the not making use of any one capital letter throughout the whole book, except at the beginning of a paragraph. It offends my eyes to see Rome, Paris, France, Caesar, Henry the Fourth, etc., begin with small letters, and I do not conceive that there can be any reason for doing it, half so strong as the reason of long usage is to the contrary. This is an affectation below Voltaire, who I am not ashamed to say that I admire and delight in, as an author, equally in prose and in verse. I had a letter a few days ago from Monsieur du Bocage, in which he says, Monsieur Stanhope se jette d'une la politique. Et je crois qu'il y réussira. You do very well. It is your destination. But remember that, to succeed in great things, one must first learn to please in little ones. Engaging manners and address must prepare the way for superior knowledge and abilities to act with effect. The late Duke of Marlborough's manners and address prevailed with the first King of Prussia, to let his troops remain in the army of the Allies when neither their representations nor his own share in the common sense could do it. The Duke of Marlborough had no new matter to urge him, but had a manner which he could not nor did not resist. Voltaire, among a thousand little delicate strokes of that kind, says of the Duc de la Fouillade, qu'il étoit l'homme le plus brillant et le plus amiable du Coriane, et quoi que gendre du général et ministre, il avoit pour lui la faveur publique. Various little circumstances of that sort will often make a man of great real merit be hated, if he hath not address and manners to make him be loved. Consider all your own circumstances seriously, and you will find that, of all arts, the art of pleasing is the most necessary for you to study and possess. A silly tyrant said, Odorant modo timient. A wise man would have said, Modo ament nihil timidum est mihi. Judge from your own daily experience of the efficacy of that pleasing je ne sais quoi. When you feel, as you and everybody certainly does, that in men it is more engaging than knowledge, in women than beauty. I long to see Lord and Lady 
who are not yet arrived, because they have lately seen you, and I always fancy that I can fish out something new concerning you from those who have seen you last. Not that I shall much rely upon their accounts, because I distrust the judgment of Lord and Lady, in those matters about which I am most inquisitive. They have ruined their own son by what they called and thought loving him. They have made him believe that the world was made for him, not he for the world, and unless he stays abroad a great while, and falls into very good company, he will expect, what he will never find, the attentions and complaisance from others, which he has hitherto been used to from papa and mamma. This is, I fear, too much the case of Mr. who, I doubt, will be run through the body, and be near dying, before he knows how to live. However you may turn out, you can never make me any of these reproaches. I indulged no silly, womanish fondness for you, instead of inflicting my tenderness upon you, I have taken all possible methods to make you deserve it, and thank God you do. At least, I know but one article in which you are different from what I could wish you, and you very well know what it is I want, that I and all the world should like you as well as I love you. Adieu. End of section 133. Read by Professor Heather and By. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.